my heart is filled today because of all the different things that have been happening in our church. Last week we had a great celebration of baptism, and then this week has been very eventful with the news of the building. Um, we've been hoping for a while, haven't we? Um, and so it's exciting to hear, but of course it is only the beginning. And so we do need to stay in prayer, and we need, do need to keep our eyes focused in the right place. Um, but it's great to be together again on the Lord's Day. As Christ followers, we celebrate worship on a Sunday. And we know that the first day of the week is the commemoration of the resurrection, and that's why we worship on Sundays. Jews, of course, worship on the Sabbath. Uh, that's their day of worship, and it's officially observed from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. And I mention that because it's pertinent to our scripture the passage this morning uh, that we just read. I was born in 1956. That makes me a, a baby boomer. And as a baby boomer, that means I was around when some of history's greatest milestone markers happened. I was an elementary school kid when President JFK was assassinated in 1963. I was around in, in 69 when the, when the United States allegedly landed on the moon. <laughs> I won't delve into that controversy. I was around when the Doobie Brothers recorded their cover version of the song, Jesus is Just All Right With Me. And of course, I was there when the very first Star Wars movie was released in 1977. I was 21 at the time, and it's hard to imagine that this year, some 42 years later, the Skywalker legend will maybe come to a close. We are not sure exactly. <laughs> but of course, when you mention that first Star Wars movie, the subtitle immediately comes to mind, right? It is, of course, A New Hope. One of the most famous lines from that movie was uttered by Princess Leia, played by the inimitable Carrie Fisher, help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you are my only hope. Hope, as Al said, we all have it, we all need it. And yet to quote a line from another famous movie, The Shawshank, the Shawshank Redemption, Morgan Freeman said, hope is a dangerous thing. Hope can drive a man crazy. Freeman was expressing what many feel today. Hope is a dangerous thing. To hope for something that probably won't happen can drive a person crazy. And yet, we all need hope. We all need a reason. Can you imagine a life without hope? Can you imagine an existence where, existence where everything is predictable and there's nothing to anticipate. There's nothing to hope for. Or can you imagine being in a seemingly hopeless situation without any possibility of relief? That would be like being in prison for life without hope for possibility for parole. Maybe even a death sentence would be better than being in that situation. Or maybe living a lifetime with an illness without any possibility of healing. And that's the setting of our story this morning. 
We are in the Gospel of John, which was written for the express purpose of demonstrating who this Jesus person is to the reader. John states this purpose distinctly toward the end of the Gospel. Chapter 20, verses 30 and 31 says this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The sign that we are looking at today is a miracle, the second miracle recounted in the Gospel of John. Since we've already covered the first, the turning of water into wine at the wedding of Cana, we've already talked about John the baptizer and his part in the life of Christ. We've also covered the story of Nicodemus and the most famous scripture in the New Testament, John 3.16. And last week, Pastor Gary toured us through the land of Samaria and Jesus' encounter with a Samaritan woman at the well of Jacob. Today, we find ourselves in the old city of Jerusalem. It is a time of one of the Jewish festivals, and it was common for Jews to travel to the capital city to participate in these national festivals. Could have been Passover, which happens during the springtime. Or it could have been Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur, which happened in the fall, right around this time of the year. In any case, Jesus and his disciples are in Jerusalem, presumably to attend a festival, and they stop. They stop near the Sheep Gate and this pool, which had a name, Bethesda. Not to be confused with Bethsaida. Often that happens, but Bethesda which translated means house of mercy, house of mercy. Here's a picture. Can we see that? Here's a picture of Bethesda today. In little over a month, a group from Harvest and the Chinese Baptist Church of Irvine will be traveling to the Holy Land, and this is one of the stops that we will get to experience along the way. I'm really excited about this possibility, this opportunity to be in one of the places that is recorded and verified in, in Scripture. The reason Bethesda is important and mentioned in the Gospel is because of this miracle that took place and is recounted here in the fifth chapter of the Gospel of John. And so before we go there, let's pray. Let's pray. Lord in heaven, we acknowledge your presence with us here today. We know that with confidence because we are gathered together in your name. You have both promised your presence and demonstrated your presence to us over and over again. And so we humbly ask for your Holy Spirit to open our spiritual eyes, to see you in new ways and to experience your transforming presence with us now and always. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. Today in this miracle we will see not just a new hope in Christ, but a new kind of hope. Firstly, this miracle demonstrated to us that Jesus is the Messiah, and as the Messiah, Jesus offers hope to the hopeless. Jesus quite simply offers hope to the hopeless. The pool of Bethesda was known to be a healing pool. One of the reasons why scores of people suffering from illness would come there to be healed. Now, we didn't We didn't list the the verse numbers when we read uh, the verses, but 
Uh, in the NIV translation, there's actually a verse missing, verse 4. In the King James Version, it's included. And I don't know, do we have that, the King James Version? What's the next slide up? No, it's not there? Okay. Yes, that's it. Okay, so it says, For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whoever then first, after troubling of the water, stepped in was made whole of whatever disease he had. Now, this verse is not included in the oldest manuscripts that have been discovered. But it is included in the King James Version because it was inserted perhaps in a later manuscript, um, which the King James Version is based upon. It's thought by some modern theologians that this was actually an editorial comment added to give explanation to what was happening in the passage. It's quite simple. So that's why it's included in some translations and not included in others. This verse suggests the reason these people were waiting at the pool. The idea being that if you were sick at a certain time of the year, perhaps during a festival or special season, the water would get agitated or stirred up, signifying the presence of an angel. And if you were lucky enough to get into the pool at just the right time, you could be one of the lucky ones to be healed. Can you imagine what it would be like to live like that? It's like playing the lottery, and, you know, if your number comes up, you might be lucky enough to be healed. The reality is that it was a pretty helpless and hopeless situation. And there was one man there who was particularly hopeless. Verse 5 tells us he was an invalid, and he was sick for 38 years and could not even get up. And there he lay, day after day, hoping that one day his number might be called, that he might be lucky enough to win the lottery. Have you ever been in that kind of a situation? Uh, I'll share with you that I have. In fact, much like this man, I've been in, hosp in a hospital on several occasions seeking healing from medical professionals. I know that we have many in the medical field here, and I think we are so thankful for all of them, how they've studied and trained and sacrificed to offer their services to the sick and to the needy. But can I be honest and say that the hospital experience can be one of the most discouraging and dehumanizing experiences known to man? You know, it's not just the backless gowns where your rear end is hanging out all over the place. <laughs> or the bland food, or being waken up every four hours to have your vitals taken, even though you're supposed to be getting rest. I've had surgeries and radiation, and I've experienced all of that. But I've also been one of those left lying on a gurney in the hallway, waiting to be wheeled into a room for a procedure. And you know, sometimes things can get a little backed up in those places. And it feels like you're on the 405 freeway at rush hour, or you're on the tarmac of an airfield waiting for your plane's turn to take off. And it can seem like hours. And hope for healing can turn into hopelessness. 
Yeah, I think I've had a little taste of what that man is going through, has been go- was going through. But only a little taste, mind you. Imagine what 38 years feels like. I can't even. And here he is. One more day, one more opportunity to jump into the water, and one more opportunity to be disappointed. And yet, Jesus stops. Of all the people in this place of desperation, Jesus stops to offer hope for the hopeless. Yeah, hope is a dangerous thing. But the thing is, Jesus offers a new kind of hope. He offers a new kind of hope, a different kind of hope. A hope not based on fables or myth or chance or luck. Neither is it a hope based on religion, on working your way into the good graces of God. We can't earn our salvation any more than a lame man can get into a pool in order to be healed. Jesus brings a God-sized hope, a hope for the hopeless. You see, Jesus' hope is based on three of his greatest attributes demonstrated in this miraculous healing. Jesus' hope is first based on his foreknowledge. It's based on who he is and his knowledge of everything. What does Jesus ask the man? Do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? What kind of question is that to ask a man who has been suffering for 38 years? Maybe Jesus thinks he's a fraud or a fake. You know, maybe he understands that if this man, this man might actually be giving up a decent living as a beggar if he, if he gets healed. Or maybe Jesus knows that in his heart of hearts, this man has just about given up hope of ever being healed. At this point, he's just going through the motions. But Jesus' question forces the man to begin to ask himself the same question. Do you really want to be healed? Do you really want to be healed? Maybe Jesus is asking us the same question. Many people don't really want deliverance or healing. They are just fine in their misery, thank you. If they gave up their hurt or their bitterness or their suffering, they might have to sacrifice a part of their identity, a part of who they've become. And even a painful identity is sometimes better than no identity at all. Jesus offers us hope because he has a greater purpose for our lives than simply living out the days wallowing in misery. Jesus offers us hope for something greater because he knows there is something greater. The man's answer gives us a little window into his thought process. Sir, he says, I have no one to help me into the water when it is stirred. While I try to get into the water when it's agitated, someone else jumps in ahead of me, and I lose out. Does he answer Jesus' question? Not really. He only explains his situation. His hope is only limited to what he knows. 
It will only take him as far as as his human understanding will take him. We're a lot like this guy, aren't we? We only see what we understand. We only see what we can understand. But as far as God is concerned, well, God is silent, isn't he? He hasn't really provided means of healing or wholeness. Or has he? You see, Jesus' hope isn't just based on what he knows. Jesus' hope is also based on his compassion. Of all the people that Jesus could have addressed at the pool of Bethesda, why does Jesus address this man? Could it be that Jesus has compassion on the very least? This guy's at the very end of the totem pole. He's at the the end of the line. Could it be that Jesus' heart is for those who are at the end of the rope with no sign of a future? Could it be that this, in fact, was a divine appointment that Jesus intentionally kept because his heavenly Father guided him to that pool to address this man at this time? It's been said that if you were the last person on the face of the earth, Jesus would still come down to die on the cross for you. That is the length and depth and breadth of God's love for you. God is a God of compassion. We should never forget that. It's not that he didn't have compassion on the others. He did. But that wasn't his assignment that day. This was a very specific healing for a very specific man at a very specific time for a very specific outcome. And Jesus was faithful to complete that assignment. God is at work all around us all the time. We just have to be cognizant of his presence and his working in our lives and the lives of those around us and join in on that work that we might also reflect the compassion of Christ. This is one of the many reasons that we here at Harvest seek out opportunities to serve the community, not just locally, but extending beyond the borders of our city. We are not called to heal every person or meet every need or provide services to everyone who needs it. But we are called to help when we can, where we can, in whatever we can, in whatever way we can, without asking for anything in return. That is joining with the Father's work and will in the world. Just as we have received, so we should freely give. Finally, this miracle shows that Christ's hope is based in his power. His hope is based in his power. There is archaeological evidence that shows this pool might have been a Greco-Roman pool, actually, built adjacent to what's called an Asclepion. An Asclepion. That is a temple built for the god Asclepius. Now, who is this god, and why is he important? There's this pool, and it has healing powers. Well, again, because we have so many medical professionals in our midst, you might be familiar with this Greek mythological god. For the rest of us, Asclepius was a man, was a god of healing, was a god of healing, a demigod, really, born of the divine father Apollo and the human mother Coronis. And I don't know if we have that next slide. You want to throw it up there? 
So these are the, sign, the medical signs, right? One is the caduceus, and the other is the asclepius. asclepius. There are some who claim that Jesus was merely a Christian ripoff of Greek and Roman gods, Asclepius being one of them. I think this miracle, in fact, turns that idea on its head. It makes sense, then, that the scores of people who needed healing would be at this pool, hoping in the healing of the mythical god of healing, Asclepius. Everyone's attention was focused on the pool of water, waiting for the ripples to begin so they might jump in and be healed. But they were missing the true source of healing, standing right there in front of them. Christ, in his great compassion, sees this man who isn't physically able to get into the pool. Now, the, now when the man explains his situation, what does Jesus do? Does he offer to help the man into the pool so he, so he can have his chance? Does he even go near the water? maybe sprinkling him with some in hopes of the miracle. Last week, we had a baptism in which eight people were ceremoniously dunked, submersed into the baptismal pool. Baptism is an outward sign of an inward change. In this man's case, there was no dunking. There wasn't even sprinkling. In fact, what does Jesus say? He doesn't even declare, be healed. He, he matter-of-factly tells the man to do something that for 38 years was an impossibility. He tells him to rise, to pick up his mat, and to walk. You see, Jesus' hope is based on his divine power. If ever there was a sign of Jesus' divinity, it is this miracle. Remember the beginning of the Gospel of John? In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Remember the beginning of the beginnings, Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and God said, God said, with the Word, God created the light. With a word, Jesus healed this man. Now, why is it significant that Jesus heals this man at the pool of healing? Well, in preparation for our Holy Land trip, we've been learning that God demonstrated his power over the local gods, little g, uh, the little gods of this world, by defeating them on their home turf. The Egyptian god of the Nile, was the God of life, what did God do through Moses? He turned the water to blood, thus killing all of life. By the way, he also turned it back to water, thus restoring life. The sun god, Ra, was defeated when God turned the sky to darkness. Elijah defeated the god of thunder, Baal, by raining down fire from heaven on Mount Carmel, the home turf of Baal. So, declare, so to declare one's power and might over an opposing force, God would defeat local gods on their home territory. It's like the L.A. Chargers going to Foxborough, Mass., 
and defeating the evil Tom Brady <laughs> and the New England, New England Patriots at Gillette Stadium. Jesus is showing us his superiority and power and sovereignty over all things by healing this man at the pool of healings without the man ever so much as dipping a big toe into the water. Do you see that? Do you understand the magnitude of that? And what happens? Verse 9 tells us, immediately, immediately the man was healed, and he took up his bed, his mat, his pallet, the thing that had been carrying him for 38 years. Now he's carrying and he did the impossible. He walked. Now, could it be that Jesus gave him these very specific instructions for a reason? Well, if you know Jesus, you know he doesn't do anything willy-nilly. You see, the very next thing that John notes is that this day was the Sabbath. Do you remember what I said at the beginning about, of the message, that the Jews observed Sabbath from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday? If this was happening on the Sabbath, then it would put it sometime on Saturday. And the Jews had very strict rules regarding work and the Sabbath. And this man would have been seen as working, carrying his mat, his bed, his pallet. And it would have been very obvious to everyone around him because this was the same man who was an invalid for 38 years. The very same man. So this man would probably be gaining some kind of attention, you would think, right? And yes, indeed, but it wasn't the kind of attention that you would hope for. You see, the faithful realize the hope of Christ. The faithless criticize that hope. You would think that the people around him once they realized that this was indeed the same man who was paralyzed for 38 years, now walking and carrying his bed, would be thrilled for him. Instead, he's questioned and criticized for working on the Sabbath. You see, religion is only worried about keeping the rules, upholding the law. It isn't concerned about the health of the body or of the soul. The Sabbath was made to give people a rest from their labors, to help them maintain a healthy rhythm of life. But the religious leaders made it an even greater burden by creating false requirements and interpretations which extended well beyond what God intended for mankind. Jesus told the religious leaders recorded in the three other Gospels, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. In this miracle, John is showing that Jesus is sovereign even over the keeping of the laws and of the Sabbath. He not only healed the man on the Sabbath, he commanded the man to pick up his mat and carry it on the Sabbath. Jesus is Lord over all, even the Sabbath. The Jewish leaders want to know who told this man to pick up his mat. The man doesn't know. Jesus didn't introduce himself. In fact, as soon as he healed the man, Jesus disappeared into the crowd. He did that uh, Messiah mind trick thing. 
But remember that he wasn't there to heal the masses. He was there for a specific reason and for a specific person. And Scripture tells us that later Jesus goes and finds that man in the temple. Because after a miracle, you are to go and to give thanks and to worship God in the temple. And Jesus finds him there. And again, Jesus gives him a very peculiar command. Go and stop sinning, lest something worse befalls you. Jesus is pointing to the reason for this man's infirmary. He has fallen ill because of sin in his life. Now, it's not always the case that sin leads to illness, but in some cases, yes. And as in this man's case, that's what happened. Maybe the man heeded Jesus' admonition, or maybe he took offense, because it says that the man went back to the Jewish officials and told them it was Jesus who healed him. And because of this, the Jews began their strategy against Christ and began to persecute him. But this doesn't take Jesus by surprise. In fact, perhaps this is also a reason why he came to heal this man to challenge the status quo, to give notice to the religious establishment that the winds of change are coming and they better get used to it. We didn't read it, but in verse 17, Jesus says that his Father in heaven is always at work to this very day, and I am at work as well. So this controversy with the Jews continues, and we won't go into that today. But suffice it to say that Jesus is just starting to exert his divine authority. Are you filled with hope this morning? Or are you in or very close to a state of hopelessness? Are you relying on your own understanding and strength as your source of hope? Or are you finding strength and hope in a power that is unlimited and goes beyond conventional wisdom? Jesus offers to us an extraordinary and superhuman hope because he is the source of all of life and hope. He cuts through the noise and clamor of this reality and brings us into a new reality, a new kind of hope one that is eternal, unending, filled with new beginnings and new adventures. What does he ask of us? Only that we believe, that we have the faith to see beyond the probable and even sometimes the possible into the realm of the impossible in order to experience life as it truly is walking alongside the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, Jesus, the Christ. Let's pray. Father, you knew this man's history before he was even born. And Jesus, you knew all about this man, what was in his heart, what was in his thoughts, what he needed 
maybe even more than what he wanted. And so, Lord, we, we worship you because we have confidence that you know that about each one of us as well. There's nothing that we experience that you don't already know. Our future is in your hands. And so we trust you for all things, and we give you thanks. Thank you for showing us a new kind of hope that we can have in the midst of our hopelessness. And we pray, Lord, that we can shine that hope to a, lo- to a world that needs you, a world filled with darkness. In Jesus' name we pray. ultimate hope we have is that we, because of what Jesus has done, we get to be with him and the Father and the Spirit forever in heaven. That is our hope. That's what he's given to us, so we're going to sing uh, about that today.